All right, good evening, comrades, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is April 4th, 2023. I want to thank you all for being here. Our class tonight is going to be a presentation from the Environmental Commission of the Party of Communists USA on ecology, can we survive under capitalism, which was a work by Gus Hall uh, that we now have published again through New Outlook Publishers. So, comrade, is there anything you want to say before we get started on the presentation? Okay, thanks for that introduction. I'm the chair of the Environmental Commission for the PCUSA. And uh, tonight I'm going to be presenting on a book called Ecology, Can We Survive Under Capitalism? Uh, it's written by Gus Hall, 1972. And yeah, we're going to learn a lot of stuff. So go ahead to the next slide. The reason we're looking at this book is because the environmental crisis most everybody knows it's a huge issue, but the connections to socialism and Marxism-Leninism aren't as obvious. It's um, kind of come into the national or world consciousness relatively recently, so there's not a lot of writing on it. And the writing that we do have is a lot of stuff like, how did Marx feel about the environment? Was he you know, smart about how that works? Or like, is capitalism good for the environment or not? Like kind of milk toast stuff in the next part, whereas this is a really good book diving straight into Marxist-Leninist ideology, um, really in line with, uh, I think, what most of us think here. But anyway, so main things we'll be learning, can we survive under capitalism? How should communists approach the climate crisis? We'll be learning that capitalism and not just technological advancement is driving the climate crisis. And in my opinion, most importantly, why a centrally planned economy is necessary for saving the environment. Next slide. So the historical context of the book and the introduction. Author Gus Hall, most of us know who that is, um, born in 1910, raised in a working class family. Parents were early members of the CPUSA. Pretty sure he was in it like almost his entire life. Um, he helped lead the Little Steel Strike of 1937, um, gained some notoriety through that. And after that, he really started focusing on party leadership, rose to the ranks, fought in World War II against fascism, um, honorably discharged. He was indicted under the Smith Act. So this is McCarthyism and the Red Scare. I think the charge was something like conspiring to teach people to overthrow the U.S. government, you know, something like that. And so, uh, yeah, they imprisoned him for a couple of years got out on bail and I think then he went underground and tried to like skip further imprisonment. And so they got him again from 51 to 59. And then after that, as probably all of us here know, he became the general secretary of the CPUSA for 41 years from 59 to the year 2000. Uh, next slide. So I want to give some context to this book as far as the environment and kind of what Gus Hall was writing in response to. Even before this, going way back, the history of America is like these massive, vast, sprawling ecosystems, super robust, seemingly just endless resources. And, you know, from the 1500s up until uh, the writing of this book, you know, um, just mass extinctions, um, complete ecosystems erased, unrecognizable compared to what's there today. Um, some species deliberately destroyed in order to uh, attempt a genocide against the Native Americans. So, you know, capitalism has a very long history of assault on the American environment. And so in 72, when Gus was writing this book, this is after a lot of the damage has been done, more like today, 
Um, but it's as the climate crisis is kind of becoming a thing. In 62, Silent Spring was written by Rachel Carson. A lot of people credit it with like bringing that international consciousness. It was talking about how pollution doesn't just affect certain areas. It's threatening to unravel the entire ecosystem. And this is not just an isolated issue. This could potentially end human life. Um, so the environmental movement, as we know, it begins. 69, things are happening like rivers are catching on fire because there's so much pollution on them. Cities are dangerous to live in. Uh, you breathe the air and sometimes it kills you. It's They're smog today, but way more dangerous. Same with the drinking water. The Vietnam War is raging. Agent Orange famously is being deliberately used to just kill every living thing in all the people, as many people as possible, all the trees, all the animals, just destroy the ecosystem on purpose. And another thing I wanted to note is that those of you who are familiar with environmentalism, the greenhouse effect, the idea that the earth is warming and is going to also potentially destroy life, this wasn't really a thing until 1988. But some of his writings are prophetic for that discovery. Uh, next slide. Okay, I won't go too deep into this in the interest of time. But, you know, as we continue on, the EPA is created, takes them 10 years to ever force a corporation to pay the healthcare costs of, you know, like an oil spill or something. Uh, the ozone layer hole is discovered. It's still there. Uh, we still have not stopped producing things that destroy it. Yeah, the greenhouse effect becomes popularized and discovered. All right, lead is removed from gasoline. The deep water horizon spill is notable. That's very recent. And what we see, um, whereas in the 70s, after the writing of this book, you have some fixing of these problems like smog and, you know, the drinking water is safer. Um, but today we're kind of seeing a rollback of these things very gradually. And I'm sure most of you are aware of this and aren't very surprised because that's just how, um, you know, capitalism works. They're going to work to deregulate this. And so this was the worst um, single catastrophe in our history and nothing really was passed in response to it. We can go to the next slide. Okay, so starting with the introduction. Pollution and environmental deterioration are often ascribed to the negative effects of science and technology, and remedies are seen only in that area. The communist leader ascribes these new dangers of extinction basically to the unplanned anarchic system of capitalism and to the profit motive of monopoly. He gives the discussion a class dimension, showing that workers suffer the most, both at the place of work and at home. While urging immediate remedies, he holds that socialism provides the solution as shown in the countries which have made the turn to the new social system. Our nation is being poisoned with the ultimate threat of extinction by pollution, destruction of our environment, the main factor in which is the plunder of our natural resources. Everybody appears agreed on this. There is a widespread tendency to blame this dangerous situation on science and technology, but the real source of the problem must be sought elsewhere. It lies in the very nature of the social system under which we are forced to live. The main impulse of our social system is the quest for profit. The result is unplanned, anarchic production, which allows the pollution and indiscriminate plunder of our natural resources. The ones responsible are the monopolies, the corporations, who made enormous profits while they pollute and destroy our environment. It is estimated that hundreds of billions of dollars will be needed just to remedy the pollution and destruction already wrought by the monopolies and their predecessors. The major victims are the working people who suffer from the effects of pollution every minute of their lives. 
The irony of the situation is that the only remedies now being proposed will bring additional profits to the corporations through producing the means of halting the pollution and destruction of the environment. But the working people must pay for this by an addition to their tax burden and by a hike in the prices of commodities produced under the new conditions. The only ultimate solution, of course, is the creation of a planned society in which the quest for profits has been abolished and the results of our science and technology are used for the benefits of the masses of the people of our nation. This does not mean that the people can do nothing to halt the deterioration of the environment. United effort by all the victims, the vast majority of the people, can force the federal, state, and local governments to wrest from the monopolies reparations for the vast damages already done, to see to it that the cost of the remedies come out of the profits of the, monopoly, of the monopolies, and um, to guarantee that none of the costs and remedies are foisted on the people through increased prices for commodities produced under the new conditions. Pollution and the need to preserve a livable environment have become an issue in the class struggle. The pollution is heaviest where workers work and live. In keeping with their inherent nature, capitalist corporations refuse to take any responsibility for the pollution which they originate. They go to any lengths to cover up their guilt. The corporations are for doing something about the pollution if it does not in any way affect their rate of profit. When questions about their responsibility are raised, they respond by threatening to close down the plants and move to new locations or they demand tax gifts in order to protect the profits. Pollution has become a new factor in runaway shops. Industry's first response to pressure on cleaning the environment is to create a job scare and a political crisis. They react to this pressure as they have reacted to union organization and to strikes. The new levels of science and technology always fire the boilers of transition, but they also have always provided tools of combat. The boilers of the changeover have developed a heavy head of steam. Science and tech have taken a qualitative leap with the new technology has come a qualitative leap in the means of destruction. Human society has come to a crossroads, can now provide abundance for all or it can destroy every living thing. Nuclear, chemical, bacteriological stockpiles can now kill every living thing a hundred times over. For the first time, the human race is forced to consider the difficult question. How can it proceed with social progress with the transition to a higher social order without a nuclear disaster? The struggle against nuclear war, of course, must be placed in an overall framework. Human society will not accept a status quo, it is rejecting values and priorities based on exploitation and private profits. It will not accept imperial suppression as a way of life. The struggle for social progress will go on. The transition to a new economic system will not wait. The struggle must now be joined with the struggle against the nuclear war. This only adds a new dimension to the crisis quality of the moment. The struggle against both nuclear and environmental disaster are closely linked. The root causes are the same. The lineup of class and political forces on both sides are the same. They are critical problems peculiar to this moment of transition. So he goes on to talk about how the food supply and um, the ecosystem that produces that food are being destroyed. So... Talking about mercury pollution, he says, industries have poured mercury waste into the lakes and rivers for decades. But we are only now seeing the cumulative effects of that pollution and the poison fish that have become inedible. Mercury pollution went unnoticed until it began to kill human beings as a poison. How long has this been a cause of sickness and indirectly the cause of death? No one knows. And if mercury pollution were totally stopped, its poisoning would not only continue, but would escalate for a thousand years. No one has come up with any proposals on how to gather up the mercury that lies at the bottom of rivers and lakes, and each year it will poison more fish. 
Up to a year or two ago, all scientists assumed that the discard of industrial mercury would sink into the soil of rivers and lakes and lie there harmlessly. No one suspected it would be transformed into a killer poison that would enter nature's food chain and kill human beings because the process was not evident to the human eye. No one had a single idea of its effects on the soil, plants, animals, or on human beings. Now there is growing concern about lead and other elements in the food chain as well. Most critical processes accumulating death are unseen and many more unknown. And the most criminal are the deadly processes known but delivery covered up and hidden from the public by corporate executives and government officials. Next slide. And to explain more, if you're curious, mercury pollution has been dealt with a little bit, but um, the concept of that accumulating in the system and getting worse and worse has not gone away. There are so many other unregulated chemicals doing the same thing, but um, we'll get to that later. So anyway, the problem of overall environment has focused attention on the oldest and most brutal of all of capitalism's crimes. It is the mass murder that has been going on in the factories and mines for over 100 years. The number of victims runs into the millions. The crime is hidden behind the biggest of all lies, the death certificates signed by medical authorities bought off by corporations. So basically, he's talking about unsafe working conditions, uh, black lung in the coal mines, stuff that's just kind of normalized in our society, but yeah, kills millions. This mass murder, because it takes place within the industrial processes, has always been acceptable to capitalist society as necessary and normal. Workers' lives have always been expendable for the corporations. 60 die from industrial accidents every day. Thousands are maimed and crippled. This industry cannot deny. In spite of the overwhelming evidence to the contrary, coal companies still try to deny that black lung disease, from which hundreds of thousands of coal miners have died, is related to unhealthy conditions in the coal mines. Corporations and other industries are no different. On the scale of profits, human lives are worthless. And adding on to that, that problem kind of got solved in the 80s, and now it's coming back because deregulation. So, and in the same state of West Virginia, probably the most dramatic evidence of lack of concern on the part of the government has been the situation with the mine workers. Let's just review that question for a moment. In the state of West Virginia, we have 30,000 miners employed in coal mines. We know that approximately 80% of them will die of black lung. 80% of the miners who go down into the pit will die of this disease. Possibly the other 20% are killed from falling rock cave-ins and the like. That's a staggering figure. Next slide. The state of West Virginia did not even have black lung as a compensable injury, and it was virtually impossible to collect compensation for it. Another worker observed how socialism, in contrast, reacts to such problems. He said, in examining this book on which American law is based, I was really amazed to see that they list a worrisome chemical being used in our oil refineries with a standard of 225 parts per millions under the Walsh-Healy Act. And they cite in this very book, as part of American law, that the Russian standard is only 25 parts per millions. Now, I don't know who's correct, whether the Russians are correct or the Americans are correct. However, I say, if there has to be an error, let it be on the side of the worker instead of on the side of the boss. 225 parts per million as opposed to 25, I say let's have the lower level. And if it's over safe, fine, because once you've been exposed to the higher level, it's irreversible. The standards are dramatic comparisons of the two social systems, one motivated by private corporate profits and the other by concern for human beings. Yeah, let's go ahead and take questions. So, uh, comrade from Canada, you have the floor. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Uh, quick question general question and this goes out to anybody who has more insight than me 
what degree or how much do we know is BS when these companies say they have these programs that are clean and, and not harming the environment? Clearly, it's obviously a lie, but does anyone have any more information on how much of a lie? Yeah, thank you. All right. Oh, yeah. So um, I don't have a specific study I can cite you, but I've been like into environmentalism doing this research for a considerable amount of time. And um, a lot of these standards are written by federal boards that are like half run by executives of the corporations that are trying to regulate them. So um, undoubtedly, that's a massive conflict of interest. And, um, you know, even when those uh, boards are trying to do something good, they often have to just say, Chevron or whoever, uh, how about you do the study and this decide what the safe level is? So um, very suspect, I would say. All right, thank you, comrade. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that this really hits home because so my grit, my family is from Southwest Virginia, like West Virginia as well like Southwest of the state of Virginia and West Virginia and Tennessee. My great grandpa actually died in the coal mines. It collapsed. A lot of people died, like several people died. And uh, right now my great uncle, my grandma's uh, stepbrother or brother, I'm not sure how they're related, but uh, he's been in the hospital the last three or four years in and out with uh, having trouble breathing and uh, has complications from being in the coal mines. And that's just what my family did for generations since they came from Russia, actually came to New York, ended up in West Virginia, somehow ended up in the coal mines. And, you know, you go down there and it collapses and there's nothing you could do. You suffocate to death. Imagine dying in a coal mine, how slow of a death that would take. I can't even imagine the hell that they, they would have to go through because you would, you would slowly lose all your oxygen. You would suffocate. It wouldn't be like a you know, a peaceful death unless it crushed you, I guess. This the only hope you, only thing you could hope for. But that's all I got to say. All right. Thank you. On the topic of nuclear, which Gus Hall brought up, it's very important, comrades, understand that during this time, the issue over nuclear power and the issue over nuclear weapons were not separate issues. The anti nuclear movement compromised both. Um, the CPUSA during this time aligned with the anti-nuclear movement, not because it was against nuclear power, but because we were against nuclear weapons and the arms race. And the only reason why the nuclear power and the nuclear weapons issue was connected even in the first place was because the anti-nuclear movement was a bourgeois controlled movement. It was perpetuated by the liberal faction of the establishment which was seeking, which were the Democrats, which were seeking some form of quote unquote detente with the Soviet Union. So that's just a little bit of background. Communists across the world, from China, Russia, even in France, have consistently been pro nuclear. All right. Thank you, comrade. Comrade General Secretary Angelo, you have the floor. Yeah. As a person who was involved in that movement at that time, the technology at the time. There is two types of nuclear. One is nuclear fission, and the other one is fusion. The Chernobyl and all the other nuclear reactors were of a certain type. That type, we have remnants that come out of these that, has, that last for a million years. We have no place to store it. So there was concern 
of where we're going to put this radioactive uh, material. A lot of them were put deep into the ground in mines. And then later on, there would be some way they would seek into the water. So it wasn't just ideological or political. It was also, at the time, the level of technology was such that we had explosions. Remember, Chernobyl was in the Soviet Union. Uh, Three Mile Island was in the United States. They both were the same kind of reactors. And the ones that are involved now in the Ukraine are the old type of reactors also. Tomorrow, and with new technology, nuclear reactors would be built differently. So, but for the past, in that period of time, that's what it was. Thank 90 you. seconds. All right. Thank you, comrade. Comrade from Georgia, you have the floor. Yes. Uh, what exactly are you uh, referring to when you mentioned like uh, global warming be being uh, like becoming a big issue in 1988? What specifically what prompted that? And also, didn't they like eliminate the lead from gasoline in the 70s? Thank you. Yeah. So the... First off, on the lead gasoline thing, that comes from the EPA themselves, their own website, that the mission to begin getting rid of it from gasoline began in the 70s. Um, and I think strict regulations were adopted, but the process of completely getting rid of it and probably dealing with like illegal operations, yeah, I guess just lower quality gasoline was not completed until like 1996 or something. Oh, so the global warming. Yeah. So people knew about global warming way back into like, I think 1890 something, the first uh, like scientists said, hey, this like might become an issue. And um, all throughout the 30s and 50s, you have more and more scientists starting to raise flags and say like, hey, this throwing it into the atmosphere, no regulation might become a bad idea. This has the potential to warm the earth. But the earth hadn't really started warming yet. And people didn't really... Um, it didn't really catch on. And I think obviously the fossil fuel industry had an interest in suppressing that. But like starting in, I think, 83 or something, every single year after that, with a few exceptions, was the hottest year ever. So you see that happening. And then you finally get writings and wider publicity, people acknowledging like, okay, the world is warming. And it is because of carbon pollution. And so yeah, and in some ways, a bigger issue, too, but wasn't known at the time of this book. Thank you. Yeah, and I want to add to that as well, that the organization that basically compiled international analysis on climate change as it stands is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, that releases reports, not annually, but pretty often, with high, medium, and low confidence on different elements of climate change. They were founded in 1988. I believe the first IPCC report was either 1998 or 1999. Uh, don't quote me on that, but that's when it really started to be something that the international scientists were trying to figure out and trying to see where the direction was and what they could advocate to the government uh, to try to reverse that or halt that or decrease the effects of it. So I hope that that answered your question, comrade. All right, I'll take about two more hands and then we'll have to jump back to the presentation for a second. When you refer to the 80s, are you talking about the Exxon report? 
I am aware of what you're talking about. I can't remember specifically what it was. I think it was just like a lot of news articles started coming out at this time. But the comrade is talking about how Exxon started to notice the either the warming or like the effects of CO2 pollution from burning fossil fuels before everybody else and knew this has the potential to destroy the world and they covered it up. Um, but I, I don't think I was, it was specifically about that, though. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Comrade in California, you have the floor. Yeah, I just wanted to like, I guess it's kind of a question of how do we get involved in like even really doing something that's going to affect change, like just in the sense that like, for example, I work in landscaping and, you know, we use a lot of Roundup to kill weeds, but, you know, that's Monsanto, that's a huge corporation. I feel like with a lot of this kind of stuff, it's it's just damn near impossible to tackle just because it's like so big. They 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 own the seeds, they own the Roundup, they own everything that we use. And it's like, it just seems so like, how do I put it? Such a massive problem that, you know, one doesn't even know where to begin. And I guess that's just my question of like, where does one begin with this kind of stuff? Like trying to do something about it, I guess, I don't know. Yeah, so that's a big question. And Gus Hall pretty much answers that in this book. And I think you're gonna like what comes later talking about that. To summarize real quick, we need stopgap measures now, mass struggle to slow what's happening now, but nothing will last unless we transition from capitalism to socialism because these companies like Monsanto control so much of society, but we'll get more into it. So yeah, this is continuing the section, more talking about the nature of the issue. So this is relating to war, uh, Vietnam mainly. So the realization that the human race faces a critical challenge from pollution brings with it a rising consciousness about other crises and dangers. In Vietnam, indeed in all Indochina, the US is hard at work trying to do what pollution threatens to do to the world. The orders at My Lai were not at cross purposes with the US military um, policy for all of Indochina. Millions of tons of napalm have burned the flesh off the bones of hundreds of thousands of living human beings. The aerial bombardment has never differentiated between military and civilian villages. The death toll of civilians is in the millions. This is the result of a policy of kill every living thing that moves and destroy everything that grows. There is a chemical agent called Agent Orange. It is used in the US for killing weeds. When some of this killer chemical was blown by the winds into a flock of sheep and goats in Nevada, 60% of the offspring were born dead or deformed. The rest died. In 1968, in this same area, 6,400 sheep died because the winds carried a whiff of nerve gas being tested by the army. About 45% of the land area in South Vietnam has now been sprayed with Agent Orange. It is 13 times more powerful and concentrated than that uh, permitted in the US. It has now been proved that these chemicals produce human cancer, possibly for generations, in an escalating spiral. Is there a more heinous crime in all of history? The fires of these crematoriums will burn for generations to come. This is as deliberate and premeditated as the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It is no less a crime than the death camps of Hitler fascism. Hiroshima, Buchenwald, My Lai, they are all offspring of a morality that is generated by the very nature of capitalism. In the struggle to end the destruction of the environment, 
the people are going to have to fight against the same class having the same morality. There's another similarity between the policy of destroying the people in the lands of China and the destruction of the environment, however. The people of the US are against both policies, but the policies continue. The lesson is obvious. A more militant struggle must be waged. An essential part of that struggle is the need to expose the roots of the social system that bears these evils. We must indict the creator of misery and murder and not limit ourselves to the immediate horror. So key takeaways from that section, kind of talking about the problem, the food we eat is being poisoned by capitalist pollution and the ecosystems that produce that food are being destroyed. Workers suffer the most from pollution. Um, this goes back to the beginning of capitalism with the workplace environments being deadly. And now that the wider environment is coming to collapse, workers are forced to live in these collapsing areas. Um, and lastly, imperialism is driven by the same forces that destroy the environment. Vast environmental destruction is also a byproduct of imperialism. Imperialists often deliberately poison the environment as thoroughly as possible to achieve their goals. So big connection there. So this section is going into why a solution is impossible under capitalism, why it's capitalism and not just human technology becoming so powerful, it's specifically capitalism. Countless books on pollution are flooding the market. Many of them describe the effects but most, if not all, sidestep and avoid coming to grips with the central problem. Without defining the real cause, there can be no basic solutions. Many point the accusing finger at the new technology and their solutions are simple. Technology got us into this mess and technology will get us out. This is of course, no solution. Technology is what people make of it. Technology is an, is an instrument. It can be harnessed and used either for positive or for negative results. It can be controlled and used for social good, or it can be controlled and used to pile up private profits. So technology in the abstract is neither the cause nor the cure for the problem of the environment. Speaking about the problems of environmental pollutants, uh, you thought uh, the Secretary General of the UN sought the source in the explosive growth of the human population in the poor integration of a powerful and efficient technology with environmental requirements in the deterioration of agriculture lands, in the unplanned extension of urban areas, in an increase of available space, growing danger of extinction of many forms of life. This is what I was taught in high school. This is, this is very bourgeois. Uh, next page. Such a statement, while descriptive, reflects only part of the truth. It is true that there is a poor integration of powerful and efficient technology, but the real question is why is there such a poor integration? How must society rearrange its structure to guarantee good integration of efficient technology with the needs of human progress? New York Times uh, editorially inadvertently came one step close to the core of the problem. A corporate manager has his attention focused on profit targets and production schedules. He has a natural resistance to taking into account environmental costs, some of which may be invisible, incalculable, or very long-term. What is involved is a conflict of values. Nixon proposes many excellent environmental measures, but he often talks the old fashioned language of the profit first businessman. So, um, you know, this reminds me a lot of things like the Lorax kind of uh, stories, at least that I was told as a kid and like the, the thoughts that it's like, oh, it's just greedy people, it's individuals, people, they just want money so much and so they don't care about the environment. Um, 
but Gasol goes on. What is important is that the resistance is inherent within capitalism. What neither you thought nor the New York Times says, each for their own reasons, is that the corporate manager with his profit targets is inseparable from capitalism. As long as we have capitalism, we're going to have corporate managers who are going to resist taking into account the environmental risks. Corporate managers under capitalism cannot be separated from the profit first businessman. These managers are going to continue doing so, especially where the risks and hazards are invisible and incalculable to the people. That is the very nub of the dilemma. Corporate managers will resist, government officials will play ball with them, and the invisible and calculable processes leading to a point of no return will grind away. What is involved is a conflict of values. What is important? Profits for a few already rich or an environment in which life on this planet can continue? There is a basic concept, a fundamental approach and attitude that underlies corporations' responses. It is a response, a sense of values that is devoid of any social responsibility. Any entrepreneur who might dream of deviating from the rules of profit knows that this is the path to suicide. If he is to survive, he must play by the rules set by the system. The root of the problem is not to be found in the evilness of individuals. And uh, today we see this in a few years ago, a bunch of CEOs wrote a letter begging the government to regulate the environment because they're like, I'll lose my job if I try to stop polluting the world like I have to. But anyway, so corporate response reveals its true colors when there is a public pressure against an industry polluting the environment of a city. Time after time, they say, you force us to spend money on ending the pollution and we'll move our industry out of the city. Time after time, they say, in effect, take it or leave it. You have a choice of clean air, clean water, no jobs or polluted air and water, shorter lives, and maybe jobs. That's not only the attitude of one corporation, is the basic approach of capitalism, of all corporations to any problem that is in any way an obstacle to making more profits. A leading executive of Randall Metals is quoted as saying, it's cheaper to pay claims than it is to control fluorides. This puts a price tag on the life of every American. For the corporations, the issue is not whether people live or die as a result of their pollution, but rather, what is the cheapest way to continue the destruction of the environment? Fines leveled by the government bodies against corporate polluters is a joke. What is $50 or $100 to a corporation that has billions of dollars? These fines are basically licenses to continue polluting. In 1970, 13 corporations, including giants like DuPont and Texaco, were convicted of polluting the New York Harbor. They were fined $750 each. Seeming Hetty says, there are other problems affecting the same anti-human sense of values by corporations. The monopoly corporations, in a basic sense, dominate all government bodies. This domination has now been extended to problems of pollution control. A Colorado hearing on pollution of a stream was presided over by the so-called pollution control director of the very brewery that was polluting the stream under investigation. There are anti-pollution boards in most of the 50 states. The check shows that at least 35 of such boards are dominated by representatives of corporations who are the main polluters in that area. The most influential member of the Los Angeles Harbor Anti-Pollution Board is an executive of an oil corporation that is the biggest polluter of the harbor. Their presence on these boards is not an accident. The official rationale is that they bring with them expertise and familiarity with pollution problems. The other excuse is that should be on these boards because of their civic importance. It's clear to anyone that their, quote, expertise as polluters isn't covering up the polluted tracks of the corporations they represent. Their expertise is the expertise of a wolf and a flock of sheep. 
there is a clear case of conflict of interest between what these boards should do and what they actually do as a result of having the representatives of the polluters sit on them. They become a cover for the polluters. They divert the concern over pollution to dead end corners and endless studies and discussions. Uh, we have examples of what happens to people who take their civic responsibilities seriously. In New York, Mr. John Burns was an assistant district attorney, 1970, who uh, went after GM for polluting the Hudson River. And he was doing a really good job. And because he was doing a good job, he was fired. That's by the US Attorney General. Next slide. Talking about how the government plays into this. Criminal conspiracy and destruction of the environment are not limited to corporations. They send to the very top government bodies. The crime on the governmental level is covered up by demagogic speeches about ecology and calling for Earth Days. The Nixon Agnew gang was the first to use the ecology demagogy on a wide scale. It thought it could make meaningless speeches about clean air and clean water and involve youth in a meaningless movement, but the strategy backfired. Youth quickly discovered collecting discarded cans and bottles, while not without merit, was not tackling the problem at its source. There is an important lesson to be learned here. The mass can move very quickly from revulsion at the effect to condemnation of the cause. We are witnessing the same educational process that took place in the peace movement. Earlier, Nixon made a big point about ecology in a State of the Union address. But as usual, when the Nixon administration introduced the bills that would become law, seven key words were inserted at every point into every law dealing with the environment. This was done at the insistence of the administration spokesman. The seven words are taking into account the predictability of compliance. These words pulled the rug from under all anti-pollution government bodies. They also pulled the rug from under the power of the courts to deal with environmental pollution. This clause makes Nixon's anti-pollution bills a farce. So basically saying, is it gonna to be too hard for these corporations to do this and not just destroy their profits? And that's like extremely common today. That is common practice. Um, it is the loophole through which even the biggest polluters can crawl. This is Nixon's good deed to big business, which on February 10, 1971, complained that anti-pollution boards were setting air and water standards, which were unachievable with present available technology and at economically tolerable costs. In plain civil words, the corporation said they are not going to do anything to safeguard the environment if it affects their drive for maximum profits. The government and monopoly corporations have become ever more entwined in carrying out these designs of capitalism. They cannot be separated from the policies of aggression, of aggression in Vietnam. And uh, I want to talk about the picture uh, real quick. I just thought that'd be good to include. That is uh, Victoria Newland giving a talk on Ukraine in 2013 in front of a Chevron logo, talking about some pipeline deal that they're trying to strike with Ukraine to, uh, you know, get uh, loosen Russia's control over the oil market in Europe. Um, and as a lot of you probably know, Victoria Newland was one of the people caught planning the 2014 coup. So we see uh, government and corporations still in lockstep. But uh, continuing on, they have the same basic class interests. Through struggle, the government can be forced to make concessions. Through struggle, the corporations can be made to make concessions. But as is the case with wages or victories against racism, so it is in the struggle for a clean environment. The anti-pollution offensive has not gotten off the ground yet. Congress passed a bill appropriating $6 million to investigate, not pollution, but whether the concept in any way is hurting big businesses. 
In their effort to win workers to their position, employers are using the workers' fear of losing their jobs. They say that if the pressure continues, they will have to close down plants. This is the same. Uh, this is the same propaganda they have used against trade unions and against paying local taxes. Cleaning and safeguarding the environment will create more jobs. Workers will need to manufacture the new equipment. Workers will be needed to run the equipment. Researchers and specialists will find employment in this new field. The solution to the problems brought on by new technology is not going back to the good old days. Such ideas only create illusions and apathy because they are myths. The task is to update human society so it measures up to the new level of technology. Going back to the good old days is a form of cop-out. So a new problem. What we are facing in the environment crisis is not just another problem, but a qualitatively different one. The basic solutions are not to be found in old concepts or even in stopgap measures as important as they are. New problems require a radically new approach. Throughout history, science and technology have broken through old social and political frameworks. Then existing social systems became roadblocks to further progress. The present breakthrough in science and technology has created a more formidable obstacle than a roadblock. It has brought with it serious danger of wiping out all forms of life on the planet. To move on remedial action, however, opens questions for consideration. How can human society continue to use the benefits of the technological breakthrough while placing a permanent and a continuous control over the negative features resulting from these processes? Economic and social processes in a human society have definite structural forms. In the US, we are dealing with the crisis of the environment as is related to the system and structure of capitalism. Therefore, the most fundamental question facing the people of the US is whether controls can be placed on the negative effects of the techn technological revolution while permitting capitalism to continue as an economic and social structure. There is no question about the need for an organized movement to force even stopgap measures against the pollution of the environment. Mass actions can influence the action of governmental bodies. The exposés of Ralph Nader and his task force are an example of the possibilities open in this area. Their proposals can cut down on some forms of the pollution. They can even postpone the disaster. But Nader and his associates limit themselves to first aid and are not physicians. In a fundamental sense, the question remains, can human society avoid an environmental point of no return while life and production remain organized along capitalist lines? It is the same drive for profits that is now an irreconcilable contradiction with the ability of human society to continue to survive on this planet. As the drive for private profit has destroyed human life through various forms, it has launched a new killer environmental disaster. The human race faces the challenge. Will it be capitalism or survival? This contradiction is rooted in the intrinsic characteristics of capitalism. So the big corporations have taken over the benefits of the technological breakthrough because they are profitable. There are no profits in the control of the negative features resulting from these new technological processes. Capitalism has never been concerned with human problems, including human life. Why should anyone think capitalism is going to change now? One can judge a social system by its history. So this is the last one. It's just talking about how everything ties together. I want to finish these last two parts, or it's like two slides. So capitalists, particularly of the Wall Street variety, frequently attempt to cover up the human devastation caused by their system by concealing their deeds with pious pronouncements. Such as the scheme in Vietnam where genocide was carried out while Washington attempted unsuccessfully to persuade the American public that it had the lofty aim of self-determination. 
Now the Pentagon Papers confirmed that merciless war was to be waged against the entire population, while the public was to be told that the pure-hearted generals were motivated by altruism. Fascism is inherent in capitalism. Fascism is a brutal enforcer in a capitalist private profit system. When people threaten the ability of monopoly corporations to continue making their profits, the system of capitalism moves to suppress such movements. Fascism in Germany and Italy were structures to advance the ability of big monopolies to make maximum profits. In that drive, they murdered tens of millions of people, among them six million Jews. A system responsible for such crimes will not be concerned with the pollution of the environment. Racism as well is the basis for a special system of oppression and exploitation. In the US, the basis for the special exploitation of Black Americans, Chicanos, Puerto Ricans, and Indian Americans is racism. Racism is an instrument for corporate profits. Individual rich Americans are richer because Black Americans are first to work for lower wages. They are richer because white workers who are influenced by racism to keep the working class split and therefore are first to work for less wages than would be the case if the working class was united. In, hum sorry. In human terms, racism is a brutal killer. It is genocide. In slum neighborhoods, 111 babies out of every thousand live births die at birth. This is five times greater than the national average. It is 15 times greater than such deaths in affluent areas. This is racism in human terms. The incident of tuberculosis in the slums of Boston is six and a half times that as in the city as a whole. This is racism. In some slum areas, the death rate is larger than the birth rate. In spite of the struggles and partial victories, this basic system of racist genocide continues. In 1950, the non-white infant mortality rate was 62% greater than white Americans. Now, 20 years later, it is 90% greater. The federal government spends more money on instruments of death than the total sum that is spent by the federal, state, city governments on health, hospitals, education, et cetera. It is not an illusion to expect such a system to uh, spend money and be concerned about improvement in the environment. Next slide. Under pressure, the corporations will maneuver. They will retreat, but they will only seek for new ways to hide the pollution of the environment from the public. It's not because of the evil in man, and, but rather it is because of the inherent nature of capitalism as an economic and social system. Capitalist production is planless. It is anarchy. Each corporation is motivated only by how it can squeeze out the maximum profits. General Motors is a $25 billion enterprise. It accepts no social responsibilities, human or environmental. Science, production, and technology have now reached a level where such problems as the environment cannot be left to the mercy of individual corporations who have zero social consciousness. In the final sense, present level of human activity produces problems that can be resolved by a social structure that can plan and guide the activity so that the benefits go to the people. And we can skip the discussion. All right, thank you, comrade. So we'll go ahead and take the hands that are up. Uh, very often when uh, we on the left make the accusations such as even this great lecture that we're getting, uh, the corporations and even many of the general public poo-poo us, you know, and poo-poo our, our, our uh, they scoff at our ideology, and uh, we, you know, they don't believe us. So it's not just profits; it's always something else. So we're always trying to try and tie it into the capitalist profits. But nothing says it better than the corporations themselves. When uh, a year or so ago, when the gas prices during the pandemic were sky high, CNN interviewed 
a number of the CEOs from all the major oil companies, and every single one of them stated bluntly that the reason the prices are high is their loyalty is with their stockholders, not the consumers. They actually bluntly said that both basically. It they don't care what the price is. They owe it to the stockholders. High prices mean high stock prices. And the same analogy could be basically broad painted over every single uh, feature of, of the uh, American capitalist society. Every single corporation in every single field. 90 uh, seconds. Basically, you can say the same thing. Uh, they, they, it's a profit system, and they would admit it. Some would, some wouldn't, but the oil companies actually admit it to, to a, a national, you know, uh, which is actually a corporate, pro-corporate station, CNN, and they admitted them, and it was pushed, published on there that they told CNN, we don't owe any uh, loyalty to the consumers or to the people. Two we minutes. only owe it to the stockholders. That says it all. Right, right from the mouth of babies. Right. All right. Thank you, comrade. Uh, nuclear fission. This is from what Angela was talking about earlier. Nuclear fission is when atoms split apart. Nuclear fusion was when atoms come together. This is what happens in the sun. When two helium atoms come together, they smush together in massive force and they create a heavier atom. In this case, in the sun's case, helium. This is what we're trying to emulate. Well, I say us humans, China mostly, because they have a need and necessity to progress past green energy. And uh, I also have a question, right? Can we name a single communist state whose uh, concerns with climate change or global warming outweigh their concerns with industrialization because uh, I could name a plethora of so-called capitalist states who not only are adherent to climate change policies given by the IMF where in the World Bank will not give your country a loan if you exceed global emissions I can reference the RMT strikes in England which had the backdraw of them trying to uh, automate on green lines uh, so really don't see how this is even a problem for uh, communist states. Uh, and if it is, then communist states deal with it with sublation, the moving past of these archaic forms of uh, energy. And in this new development in the base, new social relations come about. Really, so uh, I, I think we should change our position here, one from not the deindustrialization, but further industrialization. Because if we are Marxist, we know that humans have the capability of reaching further into the subject and discovering seconds. more about it. That's all. Great. Thank you for that, comrade. And uh, did you want to respond to that at all? Yeah, I mean, that's totally agree. I think us all would agree. Just like housing, huge problem under capitalism, unsolvable, but easily solved under socialism. A lot of parallels. Great. All right. Thank you, comrade. You know. It's funny because it was actually the environmental issues that brought me into communism. Um, when I was in high school, I was part of this organization called Students Against Violations of the Environment. And we were proposing ideas to make our school more green. And I remember every single idea I proposed was turned down because it would cost too much money. And that was the simple reason that the school board presented to me for every single reason. And that was when I, I think I remember realizing that you know, organizations will always prioritize money over the environmental impact because the environmental impact is a hidden cost that is not considered. And, you know, countries like Cuba, you know, people always accuse Cuba of being a polluter or China of being a polluter. 
But the simple issue is that they need to industrialize. They need to industrialize past that point where they no longer have to pollute. And that's why countries like China today are one of the greatest, biggest investors in green technology, because they are have advanced past issues like, you know, using fossil fuels, whereas America is still trying to push this idea of a green coal, which everyone knows is complete bullshit. So that's all. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, and maybe this will get talked about in the next section. But I just, uh, especially among the youth today that is very, very much concerned with the environmental movement, I am sensing a lot of doomerism over the environmental issues. And I feel like we, I don't know exactly how it is that we can get out the message that, you know, there are other things besides just metal straws and you know, all, all of those things, like we really have to combat the doomerism that has been instilled by the bourgeoisie in this younger generation. And does anyone have any ideas how to do that? Thank you. I see comrades from Virginia wanted to answer that. You have the floor. Yeah. In terms of the doomerism amongst Gen Z, I would definitely agree with you um, that it is a severe problem. I mean, it, it, think of the, it, it's basically the frameworks that the capitalists have tried to restrict us to. I mean, either you just say, oh, we're all screwed. It, it's the world is going to end. It's all over. You're in that camp or you're in the camp. Oh, I'm going to have to just live a crappier life. I'm going to have, have to accept lower standards of living. I won't be able to have a car. I won't be able to have a family, stuff like that. We have to break that kind of limiting framework that the capitalists are offering us. We have to say, no, under socialism, you can have a life, you can have a car, you can have housing and all of the creature comforts. Um, it's just the economy is going to be organized more rationally instead of for profit, rather for social need and social use. And I think we really need to, in terms of like fighting doomerism, we have to do it on a policy basis, meaning that, you know, Imagine what we could do as Americans if we didn't have, you know, the parasitic stock market running the entire show, if we didn't have these monopoly capitalists, these oil bankers, these people who don't care about America or our people. Imagine if we actually had a real working class government. All right. Thank you, comrade. So I have students. I'm a teacher. And my student, that is actually a question that when we had a discussion on Earth Day, uh, my students asked me and they said, well, I, you know, what's the point even then, right? What's the point of me doing anything? I should just give up, you know, and I, and I, I remember word for what I told them is basically, yes, there is nothing that you as an individual can do, because that is unfortunately the scope of their thinking. What can I as an individual do to change the system? You as an individual can't. It is only when you work together that you can make big changes. And I point them to the fact that we have had big changes in the, fat, in the past and that many of the things that have changed, we now take for granted. And that was only possible because of a mass movement. And for most of them, like you don't need to go into the profit motive. You don't need to tell them about uh you know, how, you know, the bosses and the government and it's too much. That's too much. I always focus on people have changed things in the past, average people through the legislative process, through protest. And if some of them become radicalized through that process, then all the better for it. But for most of them, they just need to know that something is possible. 
right? That they have some sort of hope that if they work together, that they can enact change. And that's the crux. That's the issue that they feel. They feel isolated and powerless. And we need to show them that, no, in fact, you hold the power, but not as an individual, as an organization, as a group, as a majority. That's all. Thank you. Thank you for that, comrade. And I'll also just add real quick on, you know, the doomerism that Gen Z has. I think a lot of it as well is because if you have a problem, but the actual solution, the actual solution is hidden from you, a purposefully hidden from you. And the solutions that are posited to you are, oh, let's just do these reforms. Let's just go ahead and recycle more. Let's just, you know, put a solar panel on your roof. Uh, go ahead and uh, change your diet so that you can be less impactful to the environment, then they're placing basically the solution on you as an individual, like the comrade said. And we need to show them that, no, there is a solution. It's called socialism. And, you know, a lot of the bourgeoisie likes to act like, oh, history's over. We can't have that anymore. Uh, no, it's entirely possible. And we just need to actually organize and make that happen. So thank you, comrades. So I was worried the time for what I was going to say had passed too much. And then I feel like as the past like three or four people commented, I have something to say kind of in response to everyone. So what I was going to say was um, there was something said that sort of the idea that technology is neither the cause or the problem or the solution. And I kind of disagree with that sentiment and, and I think the best example of why is one we kind of talked about, you know, nuclear energy. Um, nuclear energy has been proven to produce less pollution than coal and oil alternatives. It's been proven to result in less workplace deaths and injuries uh, for workers on the job. And we wouldn't have gotten to the place where we have that as a viable alternative without research into technological advancements. And so I think it's very important that we emphasize that technology um, and the link to research into technology is possible. And I think my response kind of into that doomerism as well is the, the reason I initially had that thought was because it does sort of shift the blame away from the companies, right? The companies who uh, lobby Congress to reduce EPA restrictions so that outdated and more destructive and more harmful and more dangerous methods of technology stick around so that the people in charge of those companies can retain their profits longer. I think we need to ensure the blame stays with the companies. Yeah. All right, comrade. Yeah. So, um, I'm not sure if this is going to be. I I doubt it. Like, be any part of the next section. But, um, since we're talking about climate and capitalism, I really think that we're going to eventually going to have have to have some kind of honest conversation about our meat consumption, because you know, regardless of you know, I I know there's like a lot. There may be like a lot of meat lovers in here, but you know, regardless, it, the the way that we treat mass agriculture and just the way that agriculture has been advanced over the years. I mean, 
91% of deforestation in Brazil is due to animal agriculture. So we have to, we have to learn. I mean, a lot of other cultures don't eat meat like us. They eat like Jap, like Japanese, they eat like eat meat like maybe like once or twice a week. And that's it. So um, I hope that we can, you know, kind of include that in our conversation. There's a lot of environmental groups that don't want to talk about it because it's a very touch, like a very touchy topic that a lot of people don't want to touch on. And even environmental groups don't want to touch it, don't want to touch it because it's too, it's too radioactive. Uh, yeah, so, could, I, could I answer that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we, we have done that in the party. We have an, an animal rights commission, which you may not know about, you're new. And we have brought that up quite deeply. In fact, uh, we have a ecological department that combines the environmental commission, this group, and the animal rights commission, and the rural and agricultural commission. They're all part of the issue of the environment. So, and it's called ecological department. So yes, we, we are not like these other people you're talking about. We have discussed that. Thank you. Yes, and I want to add that I believe that the Animal Rights Commission uh, is going to be looking into doing a PSMLS class soon. We might not be able to get into uh, the discussion of meat consumption tonight, but that is a topic that we'll talk about sometime in the future. And I agree right. that it's something that we need to discuss, uh, all of us comrades, um, and try to understand that in relation to uh, socialism, capitalism, all the things that we're also talking about. Centralized planning, a lasting solution. Socialism corrects the basic flaw of capitalism. It sets human society on a new path. The means of production, factories, mines, and mills become the property of the people. They operate and produce only to fulfill human needs. They are not motivated by private profits. This is the foundation for a new set of priorities for new values. This then is the framework in which all questions are determined. If a process does not serve the common good, it does not take place. A clean environment is for the common good. It is therefore pursuit. Under capitalism, there is a contradiction between the drive for profits and cleaning the environment. Under socialism, this contradiction is eliminated. Saving the environment becomes a social necessity. Under capitalism, the main pressure on the production processes is maximum private profit. Capitalism cannot function any other way. The environment is a casualty of these pressures. Under socialism, this pressure is totally eliminated. It is replaced by a pressure to do only that which is in the best interest in all of, of all in society. This pressure guarantees that no process will take place that endangers a continu continuation of life on this planet. What is involved is a conflict of values. The values of capitalism are geared to supporting a system of exploitation and private profit for the few already rich. They are values that justify exploitation, oppression, racism, and imperialist wars of aggression. It is these values that are obstacles in the struggle, struggle for a livable environment. We may now ask, how are socialist societies doing on problems of pollution? Is the environment better? Is it being polluted? In a basic sense, the answer is yes. They're doing much better, but with some weaknesses. 
most important, the laws, the approach, the sense of values, the priorities given to saving the environment are all on a high level in all of the socialist states. The violation of environmental laws is treated as a serious crime. There may be some weaknesses in research. They will have to increase research in the areas of detection of pollutants, their effects, and the means of prevention. Socialism, motivated by doing only that which serves society as a whole, has values and priorities that make the preservation of the environment a part of the overall human activity. Moscow is one of the largest industrial cities in the world. Not so many years ago, the air around it was one of the dirtiest in the world. World pollution specialists agree that Moscow is now the cleanest big industrial city in the world. Since 1948, the air in eight is 83% cleaner. There are no smoking apartment house chimneys. There is no heating e either by oil or coal. Moscow has a citywide heating system. The system burns only gas. Achievement in this area is not confined to such cities as Moscow. It spreads over the entire Soviet countryside and undoubtedly the most dramatic story is that of Lake Baikal. What happened there at the earth's most ancient and deepest lake was told not by a Soviet publication, but by Farley Moat in the Boston Globe. The lake, Moat wrote, contains almost a fifth of all the free fresh water in the world. Its depth is more than a mile. The water's fantastically clean and Baikal has more than a thousand species of plants and animals that are found nowhere else. Moat continues, in 1962, the economic planners in Moscow decided to build five gigantic cellulose and wood chemical plants on Lake Baikal. In 1964, work on the first two began. At this juncture, something truly remarkable occurred. Pravda and its vestia, having proudly announced the birth of the gigantic new production complex of Baikal, were inundated by letters of outrage. As the two plants neared completion, the intensity of the storm strengthened. As elderly, much-respected Moscow writer described what happened, and elderly, that is, the word Baikal became a rallying cry even to people who knew very little about it except its name. They were acute enough to see that the finally the high priest of progress through production had to be brought to their senses. For a while, the authorities who had designed the cellulose combine tried to drown out the protests. There were some threats. The plants were completed and began operations. Within three months, there were reports of fish dying in Baikal and even of people getting sick from eating fish caught in, Angara, in the Angara. The fight of the people to save the lake became more furious and then, quite suddenly, the authorities gave in. The plants were closed. To the Western mind, the scope of the victory seems staggering. In 1967, the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet of the USSR voted to make the entire Baikal region, the lake and thousands of square miles of surrounding territory into a national park. Extensive reclamation projects are underway to restore tributary streams and riverbeds. New fish hatcheries are being built. All wildlife ranging from wolves to wildflowers are now under complete protection. By 1970, the seal population had increased to 45,000. And even the very rare, rare Barzguzin sable was staging a remarkable comeback. The struggle to end the pollution around Lake Baikal is an example of both the difficulties and the seriousness which, with which a socialist government approaches this problem. 
the Soviet government issued a, its basic directives for cleaning the lake in 1969. Evidently, the directives were not carried out fast enough. On September 24, 1971, both the Central Committee of the Com Communist Party and the Soviet government issued directives demanding speedier action and full compliance. The new directives called for, quote, speed in drafting and implementing the organization of the protected zone. The protected zone includes the drainage basin in which are situated the mining and timberlands in the Lake Baikal region. The old pulp mills were given until 1972 to establish full pollution controls. The new pulp mills were instructed not to start operations until appropriate treatment facilities were ready. The directive set 1973 as the year by which the cities along the rivers that flow into Lake Baikal were to have full waste treatment devices. Electric power stations are prohibited from raising the water temperature in the rivers on which they operate by no more than seven degrees Fahrenheit. Compare this to the futile efforts to save dying Lake Erie. Lake Erie is now listed as dead. It is not being cleaned up. If all the pollution were stopped today, it would take 50 years to give it new life. It took 50 years to kill it. In 1920, the commercial catch from Lake Erie was 33 million pounds of whitefish, blue pike, and lake trout. By 1960, commercial fishing had to close shop. You swim in Lake Erie at your, your own great risk. The basic difference between the two systems is that in socialist countries, the battle for a livable environment is being won. The tide has been turned. As of now in the leading capitalist countries, the United States, West Germany, England, Japan, and France, the battle is being lost. There are some victories here and there, but the basic processes lead to an environmental crisis continue to escalate. While the ultimate solution to the grave problem of, of pollution and destruction of our environment can come only with the replacement of the capitalist system by a socialist society, the masses of the American people cannot put aside action until that stage in the development of our country arrives. The monopolies are continuing to commit their crimes against our environment despite the massive protests of the American people. And the federal government is determined to help the corporations commit these crimes while claiming it is opposed to this plunder. It is obvious from this that the American people cannot depend on Washington to do the job, that the immediate struggle against pollution must be accelerated. Although the ultimate solution cannot be achieved at once, partial victories can be won against the rapacity of the monopolies but such victories will require the united effort of the masses of Americans. The key factor will be the leadership of, of the struggle by the organized working class, the most powerful signal element for progress in our society. Masses who after all are the power of any revolution do not as a rule set their directions through academic studies. They reach conclusions through experiences through the medium of struggle. The struggles are for reforming the old system. They are not convinced that the old system is beyond repair. This is true in the struggle to save the environment. What's new, however, is that the knowledge of the point of no return gives the struggle an unusual urgency. Masses are not gonna wait and see if it works. Those of us who know that capitalism cannot basically be reformed must work with and for people who have not yet come to that conclusion. We must be the organizers, the leaders of these movements. We must give these struggles the benefit of our deeper understanding. The immediate goals of the struggle must be a demand for federal laws without nixing clauses that make them meaningless, 
demand must be for laws with provisions through which the people, workers, the people in the ghettos, trade unionists can be the enforcers. The demand must be for the nationalization of industries that violate anti-pollution laws. The demand must be for laws that guarantee that the cost of all anti-pollution measures come from corporate profits. Power of environmental control must be with the people. When we deal with the problems rooted in capitalism, we're not dealing with the evil instead of individuals. We're dealing with the evils of a social and economic system. All social and economic systems are propelled by inner laws. Because of the cause and effect factors of these laws, it is possible to foresee the general direction of development. It is these inner laws of development that mold the structure of society. They dictate the order of priority and the values. The capitalist class is both the product and the perpetuator of the system that rests on these laws. They will continue as long as capitalism continues. Based on our understanding of these inner laws of capitalist development, as well as our study of past experiences, we are forced to include that capitalism as a social and economic system will be increasingly in sharper contradiction with the needs of society as they are measured by the explosive potential that is present in the new level of science and technology. The struggle to save the environment cannot be separated from this overall challenge that a decaying, outdated system presents to the human race. Capitalism is, in its very essence, a system through which a small minority class exploits the majority to further enrich itself from the profits that come from exploitation. The basic solution is to put an end to a system that perpetuates exploitation for private profits. The basic solution is to destroy capitalism and build in its place a system that does not permit exploitation for private profit, socialism. If you're convinced of the need for mass action, for struggle, to cut back, to hold back, and to do away with the social system that breathes and lives on the destruction of its environment, including the human race, join in removing it from the scene. Join in replacing it with a social structure that exists only to serve all humankind, socialism. The social forces that carry out a revolutionary transition never arrive on the scene from the blue. They're never hatched in some isolated hothouse. They mature, they become conscious of their historic mission and their collective power in the struggles around the immediate grievance they face in their daily lives. The tens of millions who are in the struggle against pollution are not yet ready to save the environment by fighting for socialism. This they will learn through the experiences of struggle against specific acts of pollution. But even this does not take place spontaneously. Experiences of struggle open up the mind to ideas, to concepts. Marxism-Leninism is a social science. It is the science of the revolutionary transition. It embodies the basic essence, the wisdom, the might that comes from all of human revolutionary experience. Marxism-Leninism is the theory of the historic transition. The experience that comes from the struggle around the daily needs and grievances combined with the study of the nature of the social and economic system and its class forces transforms the fighters for reforms into fighters for the revolutionary transition of socialism. Thus, the forces of transition are hatched and matured in the struggles for immediate needs. With the help of a science, Marxism-Leninism, the processes can be greatly speeded up. It's hoped that this booklet will be a factor in helping the millions who are getting the experiences of struggle in the movements against pollution to become a new force in the transition from capitalism to socialism. So one thing I wanted to say, I guess, regarding kind of um, what steps we can do, I know that was brought up earlier in the class, is um, in, in terms of what, what can we can do is 
Well, what we could do is think about it this way. There's a long-term goal. The long-term goal would be obviously the transition towards socialist economy from a capitalist economy. But what can we do to raise class consciousness? Well, one of the easiest ways in which we can do, which could be establish short-term goals. For example, um, we can do a push towards, you know, in our cities, move towards more robust public transit. Um, getting more buses, more creating more jobs within buses, within buses and trains and uh, improving public transit, which was a cleaner way of transportation as opposed to just driving around with cars all the time and kind of working in kind of on those campaigns and establishing campaigns like that. So in other words, I, I would say like short term goals will eventually get us towards long term goals. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. I guess with the with technology and why they say that we shouldn't rely on technology f to solve our problems is that um, a lot of the things that we see are just like if we go back to like serfdom or, or feudalism or something like that, they already have the technology and the capabilities to ease human suffering back then. And in coal mining, they could have just made it so they just tell people you got you you got to work less, you got to like stop doing this, and you're just gonna get compensated more, but. Because of the profits and stuff like that, it's just maximizing profits and and with innovation in instead of people working less, it just um a lot of times just gets people fired and just to drive up the profit and what we did with that and that makes it um harder in that way. With how things look kind of like doom and gloom ish, I think that's partly because of how people kind of live sort of I guess unauthentically where they kind of there's no point in something even if it doesn't really adhere to their values like it's sort of like if you didn't believe in littering but you still littered because you felt like it did no use well it doesn't really matter who litters or who doesn't litter if you don't believe in that thing so you would just want to stop it just because that isn't a part of what you consider yourself to believe in 90 seconds and yeah that, i guess that's all thank you for that comrade Yes, comrade. So I want to touch to something that we haven't really talked about. It's biodiversity. Okay, so Mother Earth is our mother and the mother of biodiversity, life in general. Okay, Mother Earth, 4.5 billion years old. Life started 3.8 billion years ago. But man, not so long ago, 2 million years ago for the first and then 200,000 years ago, for homo sapiens like us. But you know what? We have destroyed biodiversity in a short time, if you look at it. There was five waves of extension. Now we are in the sixth wave of extension. And we've destroyed 80% of the wildlife. Since 1970, 50% is going too fast. You know, it took humans to go from the beginning to 1 billion a year 1800 we were 1 billion okay now we increase 1 billion every 11 years in year 2050 will be 14 billion okay we're gonna have to do two things socialism first obviously we all agree and then we're gonna do quality not quantity because else we're gonna kill we are the victim as well. We're going to kill ourselves by killing our mother earth and by killing biodiversity. When we kill species, we end up killing ourselves, plants and animals. 
So fewer but better. Quality, not quantity. That's going to be the socialism uh, of the 21st century. Thank you, comrades. Thank you, comrade. And I want to say as well that, I mean, if you if you look at it from a historical viewpoint of the history of the entire planet, the fact that capitalism, the system of capitalism, caused a sixth mass extinction event. And it is a mass extinction event. You don't just have all these animals and species die off around the world uh, just if magically. It, it's, a, it's a mass extinction event, and this is the sixth one. Uh, I know that it's been called before the uh, Holocene extinction or something like that, but it's because of capitalism. And I think we need to really drive that home, that capitalism has brought back mass, the first mass extinction since 65 million years ago when the Chicksa Club uh, asteroid impacted and ended the dinosaur period. So I just wanted to add that in there for comrades to just understand the scale of just what capitalism has done. Uh, it's comrade, 934, 934 comrades. Yeah, I guess we'll say I'm the Amber uh, Rice Chair and also chair the Vitamins Committee. Uh, we, in the Amber Rice, we discussed ecosystem biodiversity uh, renewable energy and pollution, all that affect us and other species. And so we, we're concerned about uh, us and animal welfare and how we being exploited and the other species being exploited. And any comrades want to join the Animal Rights Commission, that all is welcome. And if they want to come to the ecological department meetings, they all welcome, and that's all I have to say. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, thank you, comrade. And thank you all the comrades that have given your insights and comments tonight. I think it was a really great class and it of course generated a lot of great conversation that I think is necessary, especially when we consider that the climate crisis is one of the biggest crises of our time. We're about to see, we're kind of in the midst of what I'd call a climate holocaust because that's what's happening. Thank you for joining us tonight. I think you'll see how important the people's school is. It really is important to give us education. We're not going to get it through the New York Times or CNN or Channel 2, or CBS News. No way. Thank you, comrades, for coming. Good night. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, Listen to our streams on Spotify and chat with us on Reddit.